Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Wabanaki Windows is being brought to you by WERU in East Orland, Maine, in partnership with WMPG Portland, Maine. Today is the 10th show in our series on unpacking sovereignty. We'll be talking with Professor Harold Prince. Uh, professor Prince is a native of the Netherlands. He's a distinguished professor of anthropology and emeritus at Kansas State University, a well-known Wabanaki historian. And we'll also be talking with Professor Dan Ranko. Professor Ranko is a member of the Penobscot Nation, an associate professor of anthropology and chair of Native American Studies at the University of Maine. Last time in series nine, we discussed the rising power of the state through Indian agents and two precedent setting court cases uh, in 1842, Murch v. Toma and 1892, State v. Newell. Today in series 10, we'll be looking at the 1900s and some of the high points affecting tribal sovereignty. I'm gonna ask Dr. Prince and Ranko to talk about the highlights of that time period uh, that they see as most important. And I'm going to begin with uh, Dr. Ranko this time. Sure. Thank you, thank you, Donna. Um, and it's great to be joining you uh, both once again. Um, I really look forward to these uh, monthly engagements with you all. Keeps me fresh uh, on my history. The, um, you know, the, the, the turn of the 20th century, you know, with this um, closing of the commons and this uh, increased power, as you mentioned, Donna, of the Indian agent, um, comes with some, you know, inherent contradictions. I think one of the things, and, and I love, there's both a, a kind of a story about this, but uh, is also a, um, um, some real uh, push-pull when we think about Wabanaki perspectives is that um, in federal law in, in 1924, um, the, uh, the, there's a federal law passed that makes uh, native uh, peoples uh, citizens of the United States if they hadn't been already. Um, this law had been proposed in um, as early as uh, right at the end of World War One. Um, with uh, uh, in 1917, 1918 uh, legislative session. Um, and it's really just a kind of, again, you know, forcing native people into a, a situation. So what's happening in Maine in terms of this sort of increased role of the state over, over indigenous people um, at a time when things are um, pretty bad. I mean, I think for a lot of uh, native peoples the, the the first parts of the 20th century are kind of the 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 lowest numbers of our citizenship ranks are, are reached and in a lot of tribes um, there's a there's a lot to be concerned with and we'll talk more about that uh, later but the the move towards basically this move towards citizenship for citizenship um, is to kind of uh, you know get rid of any of the Indian status. I think it's along those lines, um, and it's a it's a way to kind of you know um, destroy the the integrity and, and forms of recognition of indigenous citizenship that we control in our own right. Um, 
What's interesting, of course, is even without very much power, and you could you could make the argument that, oh, this might be at least for individual Indian people, that this would be a good thing. You know, you could make that argument and say like, oh, well, finally citizenship, maybe that will come with more, <laughs> more rights, more recognition. Um, but, it, you know, for us here in what is now uh, called Maine, um, we very much were um, resistant to this uh, move towards citizenship. There's a pretty famous um, letter sent by the Passamaquoddy tribe to the, to the governor, um, to um, Governor Carl Milliken uh, at the time in 1920 um, that says, basically, we don't want to be citizens. Um, we, we appreciate our lot. Um, uh, we are satisfied, is the quote is, we are satisfied with our lot as Indians. And it, and then uh, says we, you know, just humbly beg the state of Maine not to uh, make us citizens. Um, and then, and then in a fairly subtle way, this letter talks about the role we had, uh, the, the, the Passamaquoddy's had in the revolution with uh, Colonel Allen and goes into this history, kind of reminding like, we are our own entity, you know, because we helped you get your independence. It's it's a it doesn't say look we're sovereign. <laughs> it doesn't say that in the letter. It says, you know, we've we've really we've really helped uh, your country, and we really uh, enjoyed being you know helping. And we uh, in the Civil War we had fourteen men. World in World War One we raised a company of twenty four men. Uh, even though our male population is only 100 at the time. So it's it's this reminder that we, <clears throat> it's a subtle thing to say we don't want to be citizens, but we are loyal to your cause on the other hand. And I think, um, so despite all that, right, um, it's very much a vision of uh, our own separate uh, citizenship um, that we want to control for ourselves uh, as, as a sovereign, as sovereign entity. So speaking to, to that, I think, um, even in the darkest of times, um, this is a core principle. Like there, there isn't a kind of collective move towards like, well, let's just give up on the whole Indian thing. We'll become citizens and blend in eventually. Um, it is, uh, even in what I would consider fairly dark times, uh, a real uh, commitment in, in to uh, citizenship. The, the, the other thing is, um, and I can't remember if I mentioned this one, there's a really famous um, um, uh, instance with uh, Lucy Nicolar visiting the uh, uh, Women's Debating Society in New York City at, at in 1900, where she um, is, and, and I think this has been picked up um, by uh, uh, Bunny in one of Bunny McBride's books, and 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 in uh, a couple of other reports, uh, there's a there's a nice um, journalistic report about this incident. Um, where she visits this debating society, and then there's a discussion about immigration, and uh, she's she's like, um, you know, she's only like 18 maybe at the time, and uh, the she she sort of the debate is go raging, and she says, oh, excuse me, you know, I. Uh, um, I think you are all right about this. You know, we should um, we should really rethink this immigration thing. And uh, um, we, we, we should have been better at our, at our um, 
Um, uh, the quote is, I, I believe I'm actually the only true American here. I think you have decided rightly. Of all my forefathers country from the St. John River to the Connecticut River, we have had, we, we have but a little island, one half mile square. There are only about 500 of us now. We are very happy on our island, but we are poor. The railroad corporations, which did their share of robbing us of our land, are now begrudging us half-rate fare. But we forgive you all. So this, this idea, this move, again, like we are separate, we are our own entity, and we forgive you, this plaintive kind of, she eventually also... Uh, the piano player gets is sick or something and she sings a song and everyone, you know, the reporter says everyone left the, even though the, the that debate ended right with her statement, um, everyone left feeling, you know, really good about themselves because she, she had such a beautiful voice and was able to make people feel good. So I, I think if I, if I were to think about, you know, what's happening in that first, um, one element of what's happening in that first part of the 20th century is that give and take. So you have the um, uh, some traveling happen, this engagement by um, uh, Wabanaki people traveling and engaging like uh, like like Lucy there. And then um, the sort of main maintenance uh, of our own distinctiveness um, and, and expressing that through various forms of um, petitioning and 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 um, speeches at in the legislature and so forth. Um, but I think the, the 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 kind of like how difficult it is 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 um is really um also a part of this um first part of the the 20th century which I, I know we'll we'll talk about in a little bit Harold yeah uh very much uh, agree with uh, Darren uh, thank you for having uh, me on uh, again uh, in team up with uh, Darren here which is a real privilege and of course, it's always a privilege to talk to you, Donna. So uh, Darren, right in the beginning uh, of uh, his uh, comments was uh, using the term contradiction. And that's actually uh, key uh, because a lot of people have a kind of linear idea about how history unfolds. One thing begets another. But in reality, it's a, to use the term, a dialectical process uh, between Progress, reaction, progress, reaction, progress, reaction. And we see that today uh, played out in American politics. And we see that played out in the 19th century, 18th century, uh, and pretty much throughout human history, you see that, and again, to use the term that Darren just used, push-pull, this, this perpetual um, yin-yang, if you will, positive, negative, uh, that is really the motor, if you will, that drives the, um, the, the, the vehicle of, um, of society. And uh, so if we look at uh, the contradictions um, in uh, Maine, these are really to a degree reflexive of the contradictions with the American, within the American Republic. And what you see there is um, genocide is um, on the one hand uh, actively pursued, but precisely at the same time, these genocidal wars are taking place, in particular in the Great Plains uh, in uh, the decades after the American Civil War. Uh, what you then also see is uh, the romanticization of the American Indians in the circus. And uh, we think about uh, the incredible popularity of the Hiawatha by Longfellow, at the time a professor at Harvard, but from Brunswick, a Bowdoin College graduate. 
so on the one hand, this is amazing romanticization of the American Indians at the same time that the genocidal wars are going on. And you see that uh, in particular uh, in the wake of the Indian wars in the Great Plains, when the reservations are established uh, out there for the Ogallala Lakota, the Cheyenne, the Arapaho, that the status of these warriors is that of POWs. Um, Geronimo, the famous Apache uh, chief, uh, is a POW at Fort Sill in Oklahoma. But the irony is that when Buffalo Bill is wanted to have actors in the Wild West shows, he then recruits warriors who have just been fighting the cavalry to get a special permission to get these warriors, SPOWs from the reservations, to get them to act in Madison Square Garden, where everybody is cheering on to an attack by an American Indian against the cavalry or vice versa. So you get these crazy situations. And I'm thinking about a very strange moment that when the American Republic is celebrating its first centenary, the first 100 years celebration, in 1876. So here's all the incredible uh, uh, flag waving and parades and the whole thing on the East Coast. And at the very same time, General Custer is being defeated at the Battle of Little Big Bighorn, uh, 1876. So it goes right at the same time. And one reason why Custer was killed in that uh, battle, uh, which was won by a coalition of tribes against the uh, US cavalry, uh, that uh, Custer was allegedly having his eyes on the American presidency. One reason he was so reckless in his action was that uh, there were hopes for him to, um, to make a presidential run or minimally a political run for high office in uh, the United States. And, uh, and all of this harkens back to, um, we talked about it before, uh, but it's important to understand the 20th century, which is the... Um, when the descendants of the Puritans uh, in Boston uh, founded itself, as you know, in 1629, 1630, that these uh, descendants, when they rise up in a revolt against the British monarchy, uh, that is the prelude to the American Revolution uh, that happened at the so-called Boston Tea Party, they dress up as American Indians. And so here you see the strange uh, phenomena where white Americans, who are pursuing a race, white supremacist racist agenda um, throughout the 19th century, that they have this icon, this image uh, that they tap into as sons of liberty, Sam Adams and his man, that um, when they attacked the British tea ships as a protest, public protest, when they quote, dress up as Indians or even as quote, Mohawks, which is very crazy to do that in Boston Harbor, of course, but it was a was an iconography that the public at that time understood. But they were personifying America, which is natural liberty. So America stands for natural liberty. And the icon, the image of that was the American Indian. And that goes on a collision course with the actual Native Americans. And so what you then get is in the uh, 1830s is the um, establishment of the improved order of the red man, which is a white patriotic society exclusively for native-born uh, Protestant Americans uh, who begin to adopt all kinds of American Indian rituals and are forming these quote-unquote tribes. So the bizarre thing is to harken back to our last um, uh, meeting, our last uh, discussion of the 1892 case of State versus Newell, 
when the Passamaquoddy tribe is denied its tribal status, at that very same time, there's another Passamaquoddy tribe in quotation marks of white people who have appropriated the Indian lore and the Indian language. They meet in a wigwam. That the whole thing is, is an amazing parallel universe whereby whites are embodying quote unquote Indians of their own imagination while the real American Indians are supposed to uh, die out. So that strange contradiction we see, of course, reverberating today in the, uh, the whole um, uh, uh, mascot issue, right? The whole mascot issue uh, is a echo of 200 years of utterly confusing history whereby people are truly baffled when they think they're honoring Native Americans that American Indians who did not become extinct begin to protest against the appropriation of their histories, of their cultural traditions and so forth. So all of that is to address the issue of, um, of Darren's comment about contradictions. This is all very strange, convoluted uh, contradiction that ends up in a conundrum that we are trying to sort out all the time. What is imagination? What is fact? How does the imagination have a contrary impact precisely on what the intended actions were uh, when you look at later at the high side? So well-intended uh, motions, for example, may have the exact reverse impact. It's a very strange, crazy um, thing going on there in the kitchen of American history. No, it brings to mind that uh, what we're looking at now in, in this time period, in this current time period, is the same thing, fact versus imagination. Uh, also, the um, back in the 20s, 20s and 30s, the, you, you had the, the know-nothing party, the racist and that sort of thing. And now we have uh, the do nothing party. <laughs> so <laughs> it kind of, history kind of is repeating itself. <laughs> so. I, I think, you know, I think this, um, you know, one angle to, to bring it back to this, um, you know, uh, citizenship issue in, in sort of the the various contradictions and double binds, which is, um, of course, uh, you know, in, in obvious violations uh, of of um, of uh, the Thirteenth and Fourteenth Amendments. We have uh, even with the Citizenship Act, which passes in 1924, um, you have um, the inability. Right of our tribes to participate uh, in voting, so that's a contemporary issue as well. Like how, so and that becomes one of the kind of forms of you know uh, sustained uh, wardship um, and, and without voting rights for reservation Indians, um, and which isn't finally uh, resolved um, until sometime in in the in the sixties in a in a full way, although there is a it's mostly settled by the mid 1950s, um, but that this this issue of on the one hand, you know, uh, you know, it, it's we we saw it in all you know the last four or five <laughs> discussions, right? Which is, you know, this this huge investment in state control over over uh, Indians uh, to the extent that the state can benefit from you know, the, the resources that still remain on Indian lands or the, 
the, you know, the, the sort of objects that um, Indians still remain uh, having. Um, and I think that this, um, you know, is very much, again, in these pretty difficult and dark times, you know, we see um, one of the first, uh, I think, in, in, in a kind of recognition that the citizenship thing happened in 24, we have, um, um, I believe it's a court case or, or an attempt to the, a, a, a law, which in, includes a, um, a uh, poll tax. And I know, Donna, you've written about this, um, um, but a bill titled an act permitting Indians to vote in state elections was, was, uh, was presented before the legislature in 1941. And then they, they were like, I think they consulted the, they tried to consult the, the main Supreme Court and they didn't want to touch it at all. Um, I think you might have a little bit more insight in that, but um, the, the refusal of the Supreme Judicial Court to consider it, um, they said something like, it is inherently illegal and insufficient, right? So there is this sense that um, there's an attempt to, to recognize and bring voting in but do it in an unequal way, right? And, and they were looking clearly, right, to the Jim Crow South and other forms of oppressive actions to kind of, you know, partly, you know, on the books, we'll kind of say they can vote, but we'll make it almost impossible by imposing taxes or by imposing citizenship tests or all the things that happened in, in the Jim Crow South around voting and, and elsewhere as well. So I think it's, it is just, you know, this, this investment, this huge just investment in keeping in, you know, us as Indian people like in a second class status, just persisting and persisting right through this, this time period as well. Um, and even when, and, and I believe this will be form the core of the next part of our discussion, even when the state of Maine itself studies this and says, what is, ask the question through the Proctor report that comes in, in 1942, when they ask the question, you know, what, what is the situation with the Indians, right? And they, they find it to be like pretty horrific. You know, I think there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of racism in that report. <laughs> the way the language they use to describe us as Native people is pretty racist, pretty firmly in that camp. But I think it is also um, the kinds of conditions that it describes strike me as, as accurate as well, right? That things are really difficult in terms of labor, sustaining labor, um, sustaining, um, um, you know, various forms of social service uh, within our reservations, any of these things that you would think, you know, we would have um, some modicum of is, is really, really um, uh, difficult in that 1942 report. Um, and that, and we'll talk more, I mean, that's used to justify all sorts of other things, which is, you know, the one thing we've been consistent about is we are nations and we deserve our own entities and separateness. And they will use this report just like the United States did with uh, um, its reports to, to um, you know, try to get rid of us all over again um, uh, in, in, in subsequent uh, decade or so. So it's, it's, a very, it's a very difficult time in, in that regard. And I think we can, we can talk more about what's in that report, which, which is 
which is a, a kind of legal and political assessment of our status as well. Um, and sort of the state of Maine's thinking of like, on the one hand, how, how does the state of Maine believe that they have all this control over us as, as native people on the one hand and keeping us in this um, permanent wardship status. And then on the other hand, uh, how we are not sovereign, <laughs> the logics of how we, uh, you can't have both. Like you can't treat us even though we're citizens uh, differently um, um, if we don't also recognize um, as, as, the, uh, as the state constitution does that we are, um, we have we exist in some ways outside of the political um, space of the state of Maine. Yeah, uh, again, uh, commenting on uh, Darren's um, uh, review uh, commentary, um, I think that one of the uh, elements of that contradiction that uh, is inherent to uh, to the whole issue of understanding is challenged by the Wabanaki people in the state of Maine and the repeated failure by the state of Maine to address the issues at hand. Um, the core of that is the contradiction that is endemic into the United States that is on the one hand talks about civil rights and then you have a separate category called native rights. And a lot of people don't understand and don't feel sympathetic to the idea that you have a separate category of people that would have separate rights from that of citizens. So that tension between native rights and civil rights is repeatedly coming through in different forms of language, different forms of legislature. Um, and you see it in Maine very clearly um, when you have the issue, not just of civil rights, but even of human rights, but under the human rights element and civil rights, there's a shared um, dismay about the poverty of many American Indians. And so uh, you see that also again in the Proctor report, that is the dismal situation of the poverty on the reservation on so many fronts. And that is clearly within the visor of the um, observers. And that's in a way also partly the responsibility of the state as a paternalistic uh, uh, outfit, the guardian, right? Has here the words of the state who are languishing and suffering, right? So there's something really wrong with a state that has, has taken upon itself the paternalistic control of these uh, wards. And these wards are dying much younger than the average population. They live in miserable circumstances, high rates of alcoholism, you name it. So there's a contradiction, as I mentioned before, that again, back to the theme of your series, Donna, is sovereignty, right? On the one hand, you have the rights of self-determination and self-government. And on the other hand, you have the, uh, the state and the federal re uh, republic that say, yes, you are sovereign, but, right? And then fill in all the uh, caveats of the but, not on this, not on that, not on this, not on that. And the push and pull is repeatedly, yes, we want you to survive as human beings and not because you're Americans, not here live in a third world country uh, or as, as a colony, but at the same time, we don't want to grant you the rights of full self-government, full self-determination. And that um, uh, cr cr clashing, if you will, between aspirations by indigenous peoples to have self-government or to see a full return of their original self-inherent sovereignty that we talked about before, uh, and that um, effort at the same time of a dependency 
uh, because of the lack of resources on the federal government or on the state government in terms of revenue that needs to go to these uh, deep poverty uh, pockets of the, of the state. And so uh, coming back to uh, the Proctor report, uh, I was actually interested in uh, who was Ralph Proctor. Uh, I always like to know who are these people. And he was actually a very interesting man. Uh, he was, as you probably know, at the time of the writing of the, of the report, was the superintendent, sorry, he was the principal of the school in Auburn and later became the, uh, the superintendent of schools in Auburn. And right after the war, uh, left for Braintree, Massachusetts. Uh, he was highly educated, went to Tufts uh, University and had a master's in education uh, of, the, um, of the Boston University and then also followed courses at, at Harvard College. You can see that in the report, it's a very sophisticated man who uh, has done really a thorough job in terms of digging through uh, all kinds of records and pull, pushes a whole bunch of things together in that report. And as Darren said, um, that report reflects the language and ide ideology of the time as well, right? So here you see that contradiction in that own report. But one of the things that's interesting in the, in the Proctor report, by the way, he had one son who was killed over Germany uh, uh, during the war. Uh, he had also had, had a daughter, but he had one son who was in the war. So he's kind of, you know, in the war, writes that report, uh, I couldn't track it down uh, what, which regiment or how he says he was killed over Germany. I assume he was in the, probably with the United States Army Air Force uh, in, in a bomber plane. Otherwise, he would not have been killed over Germany. That's the only thing I could find about him. Uh, but he is a, 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 in many ways, an enlightened man uh, who reveals a very important dimension of all the failures on the part of the paternalistic state of Maine and tries to uh, point out what needs to happen uh, with that. And that's why he writes it. Um, I don't know why he was selected for that. Um, I have no idea. But in that report, he makes a re reference to a booklet by uh, Florence Shea, uh, Florence Nicola Shea, the daughter of um, the uh, Joseph Nicolai, who wrote uh, the famous 1893 Life and Traditions of the Red Man, and whose uh, Florence's son uh, the only one uh, that is still alive of all her children is Charles Shea, uh, who became a uh, war hero in World War II. And so she writes that, uh, that book in 1941, a year before the Proctor Report. And she is scathing in terms of uh, the uh, broken treaties, in essence, that she says, these are worthless pieces of, piece, piece of paper. You guys have not. So she's pretty angry. One of the fascinating thing is that uh, in late 1941, the uh, Main State Library has started a so-called main authors collection and they ask her, aware of that booklet by her, uh, if she can provide a copy of her booklet. And so she responds and sends five of her booklets back to Augusta, where it comes into the main authors collection. And that may have been how uh, Ralph Proctor was aware of that little booklet uh, because she self-published it. Uh, but here are suddenly five copies in the Main State Library, uh, one of which was paid for and the other ones were, um, were donated uh, free of charge by Florence. So it's a really interesting uh, dialogue that has started in a way with people like uh, Louis Mitchell uh, as, as a tribal representative. Uh, Florence's husband, her husband, of course, Leo Shea, has been very active also as a tribal representative 
Uh, and then, of course, um, Florence's um, sister-in-law, Pauline Shea, um, who is really one of the uh, forgotten major women activists in, among the Wabanaki, very early on, very bright, uh, very active, very outspoken, uh, who was briefly married to Andrew Sokolaxis, the famous marathon runner, uh, was really a celebrity and then reverted afterwards back to using her last name, uh, Shea, rather than Sokolaxis. Uh, but Pauline Shea, I really hope that, uh, Donna, that since you are in many ways uh, a successor to these great Wabanaki women, uh, but I really hope that Pauline Shea is getting the recognition that she deserves because it's remarkable when I track her down in the records, uh, how often she went to Augusta and spoke out on uh, on these issues in a very articulate, uh, uh, amazing way, very sophisticated woman. Yeah, so uh, Harold, I, I remember uh, Pauline Shea and Florence and those women and they were uh, very active in, in politics. Um, and yeah, I think at some point I'm gonna, I'm going to uh, go back and, and, you know, look at Pauline Shea. Uh, but I think that the, right now, I, I, you know, the, the, the Proctor Report, I think is really uh, a very important document that's been in our view, in our public view, and we really have not paid that much attention to it. And you know, as you say, the uh, Rolf uh, Proctor was the uh, principal of Edward Little High School. He also became a superintendent, uh, and he was asked to do this study by the uh, the legislature, this uh, legislative research uh, committee that was formed specifically to look at issues uh, that were important to the state during during the war. And one of those issues happened to be um, Indians. So they asked uh, Proctor to do this report and he finished the report in five weeks time, which was pretty, you know, when you look at this extensive report, you think, wow, he did a lot of work in five weeks. Well, <laughs> I can go into how he got there, but I'm not gonna do that. I don't think his, his uh, all of that was his work, but anyway. Uh, he, it's his report, his name is on it. And he was, uh, he answered a number of questions uh, that he felt the legislature uh, was interested to know. First of all, he answered, what is an Indian? Uh, and uh, do we owe the Indians any money? Uh, what is the condition of the Indian? And what should we do uh, to help them? And uh, what are their citizenship rights? That sort of stuff. And his report was in like 10 sections. Uh, it's, it's pretty interesting. He does go into detail and uh, his, his tone is very much uh, racist and uh, basically wants to uh, uh, find a way to get rid of the obligations that the state has to the tribes. Um, and, you know, in his report, is pretty open about that. And there's a lot of uh, um, things that he studies, like prod, you know, the uh, Indians marrying outside the tribe and that sort of thing. And, uh, and, and then he makes certain recommendations. 
so I think that that report is really um, evidence in plain view because he, you know, he goes he goes back to the 1700s for treaties and all that kind of stuff, uh, which I know I'm fairly certain he had no idea. He he used he used uh, reports that were already done. Anyway, uh, so. Anybody have any comments on what they're interested in in that uh, that Proctor report? Yeah, Donna, I think um, yeah, thanks for that overview because uh, I think when I think of um, I think you, you spend a, a fair amount of time with this report, and I think you understand it probably better than uh, pretty much anyone I I know. Um, I mean, I think some real I don't I don't know if you want to call them highlights or lowlights. Uh, from this report, um, and this is really confirmed with the kinds of things that I've been interested in and talked to elders uh, over over you know the last thirty years about, um, and it's really reflected in the report. And so I think that's how I think about history as I <laughs> go on our kind of oral histories and what people have told me over the years and try to find that in some of this documentation. Um, it's not. Uh, how professional historians do it, by the way, uh, but maybe they should. Um, one of the things is that, uh, and, and this comes through, <clears throat> is really um, how hidden from us as Native people our resources are, um, and how, you know, we, you know, the, this this idea, and I think you wrote about this in your book to a certain extent, Donna, the, that, you know, we kind of grew up thinking of ourselves as paupers, um, uh, being totally dependent on the state. But in fact, everything we were begging for, <laughs> for day-to-day -day living was ours. Um, it was supposed to be ours and it's our own money and it's our own resources. But that, that attitude um, and, and sort of what that does to people who are begging for their own resources, their own stuff from, you know, at the whim of, of, of often a single Indian agent person um, really drives home this sort of um, um, dependency status and the investment in it. So I think that that becomes very clear um, in the report. And, and I would just say that's very much confirmed by our oral history um, and sort of how, um, uh, how we've how we've uh, thought about that, uh, and then the other part, and I think you wrote about this as well, which is um, the way that they um, impounded uh, uh, the trust fund monies during World War II, uh, Donna. Um, and I think he kind of he he goes into that too here in the report, um, where our resources um, are are the trust fund, the Indian trust fund is used. Um, for state expenses incurred uh, during World War II. Um, uh, but I, I think you know that probably better than, than I do, Donna. Um, so I think, you know, again, it, it's, it's simply this power dynamic of the state thinking like even the resources that are ours, <laughs> they think of it's theirs, right? And they can do pretty much whatever they want. That, that, that comes through pretty clearly in the report. Yeah, and uh, there are there are sections <clears throat> about you know the questions he asks. What is an Indian? I mean, what 
I, I don't quite get how the, how the state could th think that they could define what an Indian is. I mean, that's uh, even with uh, the federal law is, you know, in, tribes are, de are, you know, define their own membership. So, I mean, that's just a, a takeover of, of uh, you know, it just shows how completely uh, the state felt that they could control the tribes. Uh, in, in just that one question, you know, what is an Indian? And then uh, do we owe the Indians any money? Now that's a big one. <laughs> um, they really, uh, they, they wanted to know that question, but they also uh, didn't want to know. They, they didn't want to pay the Indians any money. They didn't want the Indians to, um, uh, to exist actually. So if they could dissolve the tribes, then they dissolved that obligation uh, of their payments to the tribes. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, I mean, and it's definitely one of those things where they're like, you know, <laughs> they just think it's there, you know, they just, they just absolutely think it belongs to them as the state. You know, I, I think, um, um, the, the obligation is an ongoing thing that is in law. Right. So I think they're, they would need a change of law, which they do attempt. Um, uh, not immediate to this report, but some, you know, about a decade later, right? There's a real push for, as there is nationally, to really to get rid of all Indian status, right? Um, the the termination era. Um, and while we are not participating in the federal system per se at that time, as as uh, our tribes here in Maine, we are. Um, caught up in that same politics and this report is is used as you mentioned it's not very well hidden that this is a, a report to find a way out of obligation and to save the state money uh, quote unquote i mean even though it's our money <laughs> so basically just allow them to seize whatever is rest left of whatever is in these funds um but it, it is a kind of um you know the the, the these these moments in time where um, um, and you can, I think you can compare the post-world, you know, the World War II, the post-World War II era to a certain extent to um, um, after the Civil War and the, so this move towards, you know, closing the frontier and the, the allotment acts, right, where there's all sorts of, you know, these kind of rise in U.S. nationalism and, and all that. It, it, it is different, and, and Harold is, is, is an expert on this, you know, in terms of, you know, with, with Native people, uh, including members of our tribes, participating in World War II, um, and how that shapes them, and how they, sh you know, uh, of course, contribute to that effort. And then when they come back, um, I think is also uh, a quite, a quite a different context though than than post-civil war so i think it, to the extent that there is this real urge um by the state and federal governments to get rid of the indian post-world war ii i think um because of a, a lot of things but in particular participation in 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 world war ii um are, are people who come back from that war are also uh, armed with and, and have experiences that they can really draw on to resist um, in different and new ways the, these efforts. Uh, and you see that both with our tribes, but also 
nationally. Um, it's sort of this effort to get rid of us <laughs> once and for all after World War II. So I, I'm, I'm really drawn to that um, kind of notion. But Harold, you're the expert on the war <laughs> participation, of course. Um, and I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's, you're absolutely right uh, that um, in wartime, uh, there's an appeal to patriotism. And, um, and in America, the issue of patriotism has, from the very beginning, as I mentioned earlier, with Sam Adams and the uh, Sons of Liberty, that American patriotism gets dressed up uh, in American Indian iconography. Uh, the whole imagery of American Indians is embedded in the sense of American patriotism. And so what you get now is a collision course, if you will, between the indigenous Americans and um, American nativists. Uh, the one reason why the term Native American has become a, a concept of, um, of dispute is that many Americans who are native born say, I am a Native American. So you get these, even in the terminology, American Indian, uh, Native American, indigenous peoples. So you get these kind of uh, terminology that gets repeatedly wrapped up in the contradictions that we talked about before. And so uh, what happens in World War I, preceding World War II, is in particular, Passamaquoddy had a remarkable uh, war record uh, on the day of the armistice in 1918, November 11th, which is the reason why now we have American Veterans Day celebrated on or commemorated on that day. But it was the day of the armistice of, uh, of World War I. Uh, the son of the Passamaquoddy tribal governor um, was killed in action and um, very tragic moment. So the Passamaquoddy actually had a lot of uh, people not only um, in the war, both in the Canadian as well as in the American army. Uh, the United States did not uh, enter that war until 1917, but many, many uh, Native Americans were on the front in France and Belgium, what's now called Belgium, uh, fighting. And so when they came back, uh, not just uh, Wabanaki, um, both uh, on the Canadian side and on the uh, US side, many Mi'kmaq and Maliseet as well as uh, Passamaquoddy and, and uh, Penobscot, and a number of Penobscot and Passamaquoddy actually fought in the Canadian army uh, because they have mixed ancestry, as you well know. So some felt allegiance to the Canadian um, af war effort when their cousins and their half-brothers or sisters would be involved in the war effort. So, uh, but anyway, they came back. Uh, many, many came with highly distinguished records of, uh, of uh, combat heroism or as invalids uh, gassed uh, in, the, in the trenches of uh, the Somme and the, um, and the other uh, trench warfare of World War I. And so they had been uh, highly celebrated because of the warrior spirit. And so here you get this whole crazy idea just at the moment that the uh, assimilation policy was kill the Indian, save the man, uh, to quote uh, Captain Pratt, who was in charge of the boarding school at Carlisle. Um, that was the assimilation program. But then in World War I, and then again in World War II, is the American warrior ethos is revitalized. And so these American Indians who are made to feel proud of their American, American Indian heritage, after their Indian heritage has just been uh, pressured out of them through the boarding schools and so forth and so forth, then come back and get a strange contradiction. And that then led indeed to the 
uh, Indian Citizenship Act that uh, Darren was referring to earlier, uh, when veterans of uh, World War I uh, basically demanded their rights. And so that came with the whole inherent set of contradictions that we talked about before. And that plays again out in uh, World War II. So after uh, World War II breaks out, as you all know, in September 1939, there was a great uh, effort on the part of many people in America to say, stay out of that war, let the Europeans and the Asians fight their own war, was a great degree of isolationism. And at the same time, there were forces to get involved in that war. Uh, American Indians, of course, um, played a major role in that uh, World, World War II after Pearl Harbor, when uh, on December 7, uh, 1941, when Pearl Harbor was bombed, then the United States declared war on Japan on 8th of December, 1941. And then three days later, uh, the allies of uh, Japan, namely Italy and Germany, declared war on the United States. And that meant that within almost no time, the United States entered the war. And now coming back to Florence uh, Shea, so when she is writing a second edition of her booklet on the history of the Penobscot tribe, the first edition came out in 1933, we think. Um, but the second edition came out actually in 1941, not in 1942. Uh, many. Uh, data points have the date wrong that was in 1941 um, and she includes in that uh, little booklet uh, of her that's expanded version of the earlier version she includes a, um, a letter exchange with the department of uh, the uh, department of indian affairs in washington dc and she's commenting on the fact that four of her sons are eligible for the draft yet they have no right to vote living on the reservation in maine and she wants clarification on that. And so that's 1941. The Proctor Report comes a year out, a, 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 comes out a year later. And the Proctor Report actually makes a reference, as you may have seen, to uh, Florence's uh, booklet, which, the, by the way, which is interesting. I just found out that um, this morning, in fact, that that booklet, she uh, is uh, contacted by the secretary of the Main State Library in Augusta for copies of uh, her book that they hope to um, uh, include in the main author's collection. And then she responds to that and then sends five copies of her uh, book on the history of the Penobscot Indian tribe, uh, sends that to Augusta. So it's a very wonderful brief exchange. I did, was not aware of that, but she was included in the, um, in the main author's, author's collection. But her voice, as you well know, uh, is very strong uh, as a political activist. And we talked earlier about uh, her sister-in-law, Pauline Shea, but that cohort of women, both Florence Shea, her sister, um, uh, 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 Lucy Poulaw, uh, married to a uh, Kiowa Indian from uh, Oklahoma, they had this, uh, and they were in contact through the marriage of, um, of Lucy to Bruce Poulaw, uh, with their relatives in Oklahoma, where the sense of American Indian tradition was very strong still, still even today. I know the Kiowa and the Apache quite well, and I've been at their powwows, especially invited uh, there. And it's really remarkable to see how the military tradition there uh, is very strong. And so in World War II, that element of the, the heroic status of the American Indian was played up in, in the media. And Bruce Pula, of course, uh, was at that time at Indian Island played a major role in organizing that. So you see that in multiple ways of flag raising ceremonies and so forth. And then because of the poverty 
um, but also patriotism is a mixture often of, uh, of poverty and patriotism that's not mutually exclusive. Uh, a number of uh, American Indian, Penobscot Indians and Passamaquoddy had already enlisted as volunteers. Uh, one of them, of course, Melvin Neptune, uh, well known uh, after the war as a lieutenant governor. He was elected as lieutenant governor, I think, uh, two or three years after he returned from, uh, from Europe. Uh, but those people uh, like Melvin, who was also on, on the D-Day invasion on Omaha Beach, but had already fought in North Africa and in Sicily. And then, of course, it was at the D-Day landing at Omaha Beach. These people came with an incredible sense of self-worth that no matter the, of the degradation that they may have suffered in Old Town when they came from the Indian Island, they didn't buy that any, at all. The, they knew exactly who they were. They were decorated in combat. Bronze stars, silver stars, uh, purple hearts, you name it. So starting to see there a bureaucrat in Bangor in Aug uh, or in Augusta to talk down to them, they didn't take it. And these women didn't take it, they didn't take it. And that really revitalizes enormously the struggle for native rights after World War II, precisely as Darren was just referring to, when under the Eisenhower regime, the termination policy was put into action, right? So all the tribes, they tried to terminate them as tribes from a federal level. So this yin-yang push-pull that we talked about before is perpetually going on. Uh, but what I find remarkable is the role of uh, Wabanaki women, sometimes behind the scene, but in this case, very much on the, on the forefront, in particular when their husbands or sons are in combat in the Pacific and in Europe. Okay, thank you. And uh, Darren, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna let you end the show. Great. <laughs> Thank you, Doug. Hey, I got to go first end to end. That's that's yeah, quite a position. Go. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, I mean, this is, um, I mean, I think I'm really happy with our treatment um, today of, uh, you know, really the first half of the 20th century. Things shift and and yet <laughs> really build out um, in, in, in familiar ways uh, uh, in the second part of the 20th century with, with some real uh, differences starting in the 60s um, uh, and, and perhaps 70s. The um, I will say the only the only thing I'd like to add as as we as we kind of wrap up today is um, is the role of uh, the boarding schools. Um, we didn't give that a, a, a large treatment. We talked a little bit about it last time, and 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 then Harold referenced it a, a little bit uh, just now. Um, it really is in its heyday, kind of in, in the first part of the 20th century. And of course, you know, Carlisle starts in 1879, and there are Penobscots going by the by 1890, I believe, um, and some Passamaquoddies as well. But um, and then the, of course, the residential schools in Canada that um, um, our, our sister tribes are are, are impacted by. But th these dramatic acts of assimilation um, uh, through education, right, is part of the story of this very dark time. Um, uh, I think, you know, at times, you know, um, as it gets closer to, you know, uh, uh, the 1910s, uh, um, Carlisle is seen as a little bit uh, slightly as an opportunity by certain Native people um, for education beyond what they could get here in the state. 
Um, but I think uh, it, its mission to to really destroy the uh, the culture and, and identity of us as Native people is a solid um, statement about sort of these interests um, of of various state and federal entities to to um, forcibly assimilate and basically destroy us. So I would say, um, you know, in, in, that is a part of the story of this very difficult first half of the 20th century um, and uh, how we view education is shaped by this. Uh, and, and I think, and it, it, it's, it's, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about the Proctor report and I think that's important, but I think, you know, Proctor as an educator mobilizing, um, you know, fairly racist language, uh, even though he was a highly educated man, you know, just, it, 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 it proves the kind of uh, difficulties uh, that we as Wabanaki people are facing in this, in this um, again, I think a very difficult part of our history, um, which because of uh, other things that Harold just mentioned, I think starts to get a little bit better uh, towards the end of the 20th century, but I believe we'll talk about that next time. So thank you, Donna. Thank you, Harold, for, for today. Thank you. And thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Donna Loring. You've been listening to Wabanaki Windows. I want to thank Professor Harold Prince for being on the show today and uh, Professor uh, Darren Ranko. The music for our show is uh, by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from the CD Dreamwalk. The engineers for our show are Jessica Lockhart of WMPG and John Mann of WERU. Tune in again next month for another Wabanaki Windows. <laughs>